The Alaska Science Pod is a production of UAF's Geophysical Institute, for whom Ned Rizal has been writing science stories since 1994, when Bill Clinton was president and Justin Bieber was born. On this first episode of the Alaska Science Pod, Geophysical Institute science writer Ned Rizal speaks with Kathy Cahill. Kathy, an expert on aerosols floating in the air we breathe, became the director of UAF's Alaska Center for Unmanned Aircraft Systems Integration a few years ago. She and her team are now using intelligent drones to do everything from search for lost hikers to spot whales in busy shipping channels. Her Fairbanks-based team is helping write the book on what unmanned aircraft can and will do. Thank you, Kathy Cahill, for being the first ever guest on the Alaska Science Pod. Can you tell me a little bit, Kathy, about the Unmanned Aircraft Systems Program at the University of Alaska Fairbanks? Thanks. Great. So, Ned, I'm Kathy Cahill. I am the director of the Alaska Center for Unmanned Aircraft Systems Integration in the Geophysical Institute at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. And what that really translates to is I run the University of Alaska Fairbanks' Center of Excellence for Unmanned Aircraft Systems Research. So the first question is, what the heck is an unmanned aircraft system? Yeah. And it is what most people know as a drone. We don't like the term drone because it implies that there's no human contact. It's stupid. It's, it's you know, running by itself. Uh, when we work with these aircraft, we actually have a person in the loop monitoring it at all times, making sure that it is doing what it needs to be doing and that everybody is safe. So we've got a program at the university. It was started in 2001. And so we're some of the granddaddies in this field because it is a brand new field and is what we call a disruptive technology. That means the field is moving very quickly and has the ability to make a large shift in how people think about technology and, in our case, uh, delivering goods to rural communities, monitoring pipelines, delivering medical supplies, and a whole bunch of other things that are currently being done with manned aircraft. Yeah, so you'd think being in Alaska... We'd have a lot of applications just in state. We really do. Alaska's got a tremendous number of what we call use cases, basically missions that are of import that we might want to do. So it can be something as simple as flying over a salmon stream and counting fish, or it could be something as complex as delivering emergency medical supplies to somebody who is stranded in the middle of nowhere uh, to something as high-tech as being able to use an unmanned aircraft as a communications relay. So if the cell phone coverage is down or if somebody is lost and at the bottom of a valley, we can overfly with an unmanned aircraft and relay that cell phone coverage and get them help. Oh, sort of be line of sight, a hovering line of sight for the signal. If we can. Um, that would allow a radio line of sight for the cell phone coverage to be able to to transmit so we can, you know, provide a line of sight for people in the bottom of valleys. And we can also, of course, do search and rescue in those areas. So there's a lot of potential in terms of some of the good that we can do with these aircraft. So what is your fleet like right now? How many aircraft does UAF have? So it depends on how you count them. Uh, In terms of the prime aircraft we use, we probably have 
20 to 30 that we use regularly, and they're anything from some small, like, four-inch ones that we use to teach students about aerodynamics and science and math and actually just go have fun with the kids to our largest right now is a 16-foot wingspan, 300-pound twin-engine unmanned aircraft that we are using to help protect whales in the St. Lawrence Seaway from getting hit by ships. Right. Um, How often do you guys get these interesting requests? Well, deploying the Sea Hunter, which is is the large aircraft, um, requires a fair amount of time and planning. And we will get uh, several missions per year with her. Uh, We've done flights out of um, Kaparik up north uh, in in Alaska, out over the Arctic Ocean. Uh, We're going to be doing some work up north with our sentries, um, which are our 400-pound maximum takeoff weight, uh, 12-foot wingspan aircraft. Um, All of these require a fair amount of time and planning, and we only have a, a limited number of personnel available. So trying to do multiple missions at the same time can be a challenge. So We'll probably get three or four a year in terms of these types of missions for the larger unmanned aircraft. Now, we are looking at expanding that and doing operations out of Fairbanks International Airport to work on doing uh, operations that are what we call beyond visual line of sight. It means they're out of line of sight of the pilot who's actually flying the aircraft. Who's on the ground. Uh-huh. Yeah, this is a whole area of research for the FAA because at the moment, the regulations want you to keep the aircraft in sight so that they guarantee that you're not going to hit any other plane because you can see any plane that's near your aircraft. Well, we're helping develop the technologies that allow these aircraft to autonomously spot and then avoid any other aircraft in the airspace. Hmm. So if we ever lose communications with the aircraft, the aircraft will by itself still be able to avoid all other air traffic. And this is a huge safety aspect that the FAA is very excited about because it would guarantee that we will not have an unmanned aircraft, manned aircraft collision. Um, so this is something that they are really looking at in terms of the safety of the airspace. And we're helping them develop those technologies. Um, We do a lot of testing out at the Coker Flat Research Range on the various cameras, radars, and other types of systems that might actually work for that. And so we're working on developing those systems and then using them on test missions here in Alaska. Because, to be honest, Alaska is sparsely populated in large areas, and so the ground hazard is minimal. You don't want to test this in a highly populated area. You want to make sure that any testing you do, you are as safe as possible. And for us, the ground hazard is very, very low. The chances we will hit a person or their property um, is minor. So it's a, a case of with working with the FAA to develop those, you know, the policies, procedures, and technologies needed to do the safe integration. And so we will be flying Sea Hunter and or Sentry off of Fairbanks International Airport uh, in the near future. We're working with the airport folks to make sure that we have all the communications down. Uh, We know how we're going to operate. And the reality is we operate just like any other plane. 
And that's one of the great things about the work we're doing in Canada is we're feeding that information back into the FAA in terms of here's what we're doing with their regulators to solve these problems and to, you know, enhance communication with the regulators and everybody else. So we're, we're doing multiple things to really get this integration of the unmanned aircraft into the manned airspace. And I have to admit it's fun. When you pull up FlightAware, it's a flight tracking software that you can use to track any flight in the United States. Right. If you put in the University of Alaska Fairbanks Sea Hunter's tail number, we come up as an aircraft. And if our team is flying, you can put in that tail number and you can see us operating just like any other aircraft in the world. Hmm. The only difference you can tell is that we have UA at the end of our tail number for unmanned aircraft. So do you have a base um, outside Fairbanks International, someplace you fly little test missions from? So we do a bunch of flights with small unmanned aircraft, either on campus or out at the Poker Flat Research Range. Those are our two of our primary spots for doing a lot of this test and evaluation. Right. Uh, we like flying Near the university, we fly low, so there's no risk to the manned aircraft, um, and we're in communication with the tower as we need to be. Um, and, of course, it's nice to just be able to go out your door and fly. Now, we fly some of the more complicated missions out of the Poker Flat Research Range because we have uh, an area where we've got good visibility of the airspace. It's not highly populated. And we can set up and do some more complex um, missions. For example, testing and detecting a void, we will hire aircraft to come fly through over the Poker Flat Research Range so that we can see at what point these avoidance systems actually spot the other aircraft. Hmm. This is some important data for the FAA. Uh, we also have an area out over the Trans-Alaska Pipelines that the FAA has given us permission to do some testing and Alaska Pipeline Services, bless their hearts, um, are encouraging us to do that testing so that they can look at the technologies that are coming available that they potentially could use to monitor the pipeline and do other missions of import to their safety case. Yeah, you can see where unmanned aircraft would be quite helpful for them. What is an Alaska project that sort of sticks in your mind as being different or something you'd never expected? Cargo delivery to remote communities. That was something that initially had never crossed my mind when I got into unmanned aircraft. I was looking at them from a scientific point of view in terms of being able to achieve science goals. Right. But the reality is there are a whole bunch of commercial opportunities with these aircraft uh, to enhance aviation safety and improve quality of life in remote communities. And uh, we joke about Amazon having a last mile problem. Well, here in Alaska, we have a last hundreds of miles problem. Yeah, describe that for me. What does that mean? So a last mile problem means um, Amazon does really well at getting things to various hubs, but the challenge is how do you get at that last mile to the actual people? Right. Here in Alaska, we can get cargo to major hubs, but now how do we get it that last hundreds of miles to a remote community? Yeah. And right now it's done with air cargo carriers, um, and we have a lot of them here in Fairbanks. 
And they do a hub-and-spoke model where it comes into Fairbanks and then they put it on smaller planes like Grand Caravans and get it out to the, the communities. Well, if the community happens to be fogged in, you may not have an aircraft that is equipped to fly under non-visual conditions. Right. So this is a case where we potentially could get a small unmanned aircraft in because we are flying via instruments and be able to get goods or mail or, you know, needed medical supplies into that community under those conditions. Wow. Uh, it's also safer to fly an unmanned aircraft in many cases than a manned aircraft. Um, you know, we lose pilots and planes every year here in Alaska. Um, and this would be something where potentially we could take somebody out of the cockpit, have them still be a pilot, still be responsible for the airspace, for that unmanned aircraft. So they're still using all of their piloting skills in terms of knowledge of airspace and FAA, but now they are able to do it from a computer at, at a home base as opposed to in the cockpit. And this is a tremendous opportunity to improve, you know, how frequently we can get fresh goods like, like vegetables out to a community. Um, so I see tremendous potential. And unlike Virginia Tech, which has done the grand, you know, popsicle across campus type delivery, uh -huh. uh, we are really focused on essential goods. You know, diapers and milk are not sexy, but they are very important. So, you know, we're really looking at expanding the ability to do cargo to the remote communities. And it's it's exciting, and it is also a challenge because you need to go beyond visual line of sight. And the regulations right now, um, the technology can't meet. So it is a, it's a real challenge, but the opportunities to move this forward in Alaska are tremendous, and it's exciting. Yeah. So do any of your aircraft like have the range where they could go from Fairbanks to, say, Tanana, the village of Tanana, which is about 100 miles away from us? Easily. Uh, hmm. Sentry and Sea Hunter both can do that. Uh, we also have an octocopter that has a 10-hour endurance, so 10 hours at 55 miles an hour. You can go a fairly good distance. Hmm. Um, and our Sea Hunters can stay aloft for about 12 and a half hours. And 12 and a half hours at, you know, 65 knots, you can cover a lot of territory. So they're normal flights you know, cover hundreds of thousands of kilometers. So easily we could reach, you know, a bunch of the rural communities with the aircraft we have. And we like to think about Sea Hunter. Sea Hunter could fly the entire Trans-Alaska pipeline in a single flight. Wow, 800 miles. Mm -hmm. Wow, so if you were to, say, send a few doses of COVID vaccine to Tanana the Sea Hunter would land on the airstrip there, I'm guessing. And uh, what then? Uh, probably you would have it refueled and we would be able to remotely taking it off and bring it home. Wow. So you would have some contact in the village who would refuel it, put more gas in it for you, kind of put it where you want it on the airstrip, and then you could take it from there after yep. they get the car. And of course, that will depend on the distance away. You know, if it's a close village, we won't need to refuel. You know, we can land her. Right. They can get whatever it is out of the cargo hold and shut it back up, and we can turn around and take off from the airport. 
Wow, that does sound like a great opportunity. How does uh, how does the university handle that? Uh, which sounds something that sounds like a great private business idea. How does the university deal with that? So the university, because we are partially uh, state-funded, is not allowed to compete with commercial interests. So what we can do is pilot these missions. We work with the FAA. We try to challenge the regulations um, and get them set up so that a commercial company can then come in and actually do the mission. Um, If you're going to do cargo carrying for hire, Uh, Beyond visual line of sight, the FAA regulations require that you have an air carrier certificate, just like any manned aircraft company does. So um, we help people get through the process to get that what's called a Part 135 certification. And those companies will then be able to do these commercial types of operations. So what we do is we do a lot of the challenging baseline changing of rules, regulations, policy procedures. Um, We provide the data so the FAA can do that. And then these will get spun off to other companies. Nice. So sounds like you have to be very inventive. Um, I'm wondering like who you have on your staff. Do you have like engineers, pilots of other craft? What kind of people do you have working for you? So we're a really funny bunch. Um, I like to tell people that we're running a military flight wing as a business in a university. (laughs) It's the best and worst of all worlds. Um, We have a whole bunch of retired uh, military or, Mm -hmm. you know, former military. We have some defense contractors. We've got science, scientists, engineers, faculty, staff, students. Um, we have embedded contractors, we have a business developer, you know, it's an interesting group of people, but there are a couple of key things in here. Um, with all of our, uh, our former, you know, all of our veterans, every single one of them knows how to do an operation. They are professionals. They will achieve the mission. Um, if you say, go do this. They're going to figure out a way to go achieve that mission and to achieve it safely. Hmm. They're consummate professionals. Then we have the creativity of the scientists and the engineers with the, hey, is it possible we can do X? And watching the interplay between the two is a lot of fun. Um, There are times it's challenging because you speak two different languages. Right. uh, You know, and so... Part of my job is translator. So I translate military into academic academic, and academic into military. And, you know, eventually everybody learns the other language, but it can be a little rough at the beginning in terms of the communication styles and expectations. Now, all of our pilots are manned aircraft pilots in addition to being unmanned aircraft pilots. So we want people who fly in the airspace and are familiar with the rules, regulations, FAA policies. So they know how to communicate to other pilots. They know how to communicate to the FAA. And they are very aware that the airspace is not open in terms of there's not, it's not a function of there's nothing up there. There are planes and people up there. And so we need to be 
very, very careful and ensure safety of every operation. This is not just a technological toy that we throw up and assume nothing's going to go wrong. Our folks fly in the airspace, so they are very aware of what the impact of this technology on pilots and other people will be. And that safety and that ability to communicate that to other pilots is very important for the acceptance of this technology. Right. And like all your aircraft are different also, right? I mean, you have several of the same model. Uh, but yeah, your smallest one that operates on a battery is a lot different than the gas-powered Sea Hunter, right? Yes. So our pilots have to be able to handle a wide variety of aircraft, but they're all handling it under FAA rules. So, you know, we refer to the Part 107. Well, that is part of the Code of Federal Regulations under Title 49, which governs aircraft. And that particular one is small unmanned aircraft. So under 55 pounds, under 400 feet in the atmosphere, during daylight, etc. But we are always operating in concordance with FAA regulations, no matter what size the aircraft is. But it may change what sections we work under depending on what size the aircraft is. So once you get above 55 pounds, you're no longer operating as that Part 107, small amend aircraft. You're operating as a bigger aircraft, which is a Part 91. And then if you go to do cargo carrying, then you need a Part 135. So we are constantly working under the FAA regulations, but what section depends on what aircraft. What aircraft we're using depends on what the mission is. So if it's something where we just want to do an overflight and, you know, count moose in a small area, we can probably use a small unmanned aircraft and operate it as a part 107. Uh, if we want to do a much bigger area, then we are going to have to deal with the fact that we're beyond visual line of sight and do we have the right technologies and we'll have to ask the FAA for a waiver to be able to fly our unmanned aircraft beyond visual line of sight. So it is a case of um, matching the aircraft to the mission and then being able to figure out what rules we have to operate under and make sure that we are meeting those expectations and reporting to the FAA. Right. And you have to have some like ready to go, right? seems like over the past few years, you've had some spontaneous missions where you've had to help local police department look, search the woods um, or something or help, help them from above somehow. Yep. And our team's attitude is if there is a mission where it is life and limb, we will go. And our team, to be honest, those missions are incredibly satisfying, especially if they have a good conclusion. Yeah, Because it's something where we're helping our community, we are helping people and our entire team that that just makes them happy uh, in terms of being able to do something that has such a major impact. The fact that we're called out, of course, means that there's some sort of horrible situation and that's not good. But the fact that we can participate and help uh, really is a good thing for our team. Yeah, it seems like people have just been finding more and more things to do with unmanned aircraft. Um, do you see that as 
continuing or has that sort of plateaued? People, uh, go ahead. I sir. still see all sorts of opportunities. And I think that really the limit is just the limit of creativity of scientists and people who are monitoring infrastructure and, you know, creative people who want to do cinematography type things. I really don't think we have hit the limit. And part of that is that with the rules right now really making it difficult to go beyond visual line of sight, a lot of the missions that we've thought about, we haven't been able to do. Right. So I think once we get the technologies and the policies and procedures in place, uh, you're going to see just an explosion of these aircraft being able to do new missions that people haven't really thought of yet or have thought of but haven't been able to implement. So what's the history of the program at UAF? So the program was started back in 2001. Uh, it was the brainchild of Greg Walker, who was the Booker Flat Research Range Manager. Mm-hmm. And he'd had a background in unmanned aircraft before he came up. Uh, he was an aerospace and aeronautics engineer. And uh, at Poker Flat, their major busy time of the year happens to be winter when they're doing the rocket launches. And I think he really needed something to help keep his brain engaged. So he started working with unmanned aircraft in terms of doing missions of import to Alaska. And uh, so the, they developed a really good program out there and did a lot of flights for years using the Scan Eagle aircraft. And they did missions out over the Arctic Ocean. They did wildfire monitoring. Um, and the, the program was based at Poker Flat. And so there was a lot of activity out there on that particular front. Um, and then as it has grown, it has it moved into town and then up to the university where we are now. And we have gotten into flying larger aircraft. So it has been an evolution. And in 2013, basically, we became a an FAA unmanned aircraft test site, one of seven in the country. And that gave us some specific permissions that nobody else in the country had uh-huh. uh, to be able to do tests and evaluation, research and development on these aircraft uh, for the public good. And that opened the door to doing more and more work with the FAA to advance the technology. So since becoming a test site, we have also become a part of the FAA's Center of Excellence for UAS Research, a program called ASSURE. And inside ASSURE, we are doing a lot of research on safety. How do you use these aircraft safety? What sorts of technologies are being developed? Can you test the technologies? And we also were able to, for the state of Alaska, lead the UAS integration pilot program uh, competitions and become one of the 10 integration pilot program sites. Um, So this was a a program started by President Trump through an executive order to accelerate the usage of unmanned aircraft in the national airspace system. And we were able to do some pioneering efforts under the IPP, including the first true beyond visual line of sight, no human eyes required on the aircraft, purely detect and avoid uh, situation um, technologies running 
out over the Trans-Alaska Pipeline. We went a grand total of 3.9 miles, but it was the first time it had been done under the small unmanned aircraft rule in the national airspace system. Hmm. So with the successes we were having under that program, when the program sunsetted last October, the FAA committed to our team for another four years. So we are now part of the BEYOND program, which is designed to break that BEYOND visual line of sight challenge. And our foci under that program are uh, long linear infrastructure monitoring, read pipelines, and also remote cargo delivery. Hmm. So we are looking at you know, working towards being able to do cargo delivery to a remote community like Galena uh, within four years and be able to do the entire Trans-Alaska Pipeline within four years. These are our goals, and we're working with the FAA to move there. So we have continued to evolve and grow, and our reputation keeps growing, and the FAA keeps giving us uh you know, basically uh, a better way to work with them and to really advance on the aircraft on missions that are going to be important for our state. Yeah. So let's go back a little bit here, Kathy. You didn't start your career as an unmanned aircraft person. You're an atmospheric scientist and I've talked with you before about a lot of things, from Iraqi dust that soldiers might be breathing, to volcanic ash, to forest fire smoke indoors. I remember that from 2004 when we had that extreme wildfire year. So you're an atmospheric scientist. Your dad's an atmospheric scientist, right? Or Tom, he was. He was. Yeah. So... How did you get in this gig? So I got in this gig uh, because I wanted to be able to do vertical profiling of air pollution. And if you want to do that, you probably need an aircraft. And aircraft are expensive. They can be tricky to get. And this unmanned aircraft technology looked like it would be a nice way to be able to basically do what we call vertical profiles. You start at the ground, you kind of work your way up, you get the concentration of air pollution at every level, then you can chemically fingerprint it and determine where it's coming from, et cetera. So your, so aircraft, started, sorry, your aircraft would just sort of zigzag and sort of inhale whatever's in the air and you'd be able to yep. see what, are, what those tiny things are. Yep. So basically I'd be able to take uh, samples at every altitude in, as it moves up and down in the uh, atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And that tells me at what height is the pollution, you know, blowing over Fairbanks, you know, is it all trapped under the inversion layer or does it happen to be, you know, transporting in from Asia, uh, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. So I started working on building samplers for unmanned aircraft. And I learned a fair amount under about unmanned aircraft during that process. Um, I then went on sabbatical uh, to Washington, D.C., and worked on the U.S. Senate Committee for Energy and Natural Resources for 19 months. And when I came home, um, I joined the Quasi part-time. The rest of my time was teaching chemistry and, and doing some other work. And um, the director of the program quit. And my boss asked if I was willing to take over, and the answer was, 
yes, I was. And the next thing I knew, I was director of this amazing program. I'm, I'm still surprised I said yes to taking on a leadership role in this area, uh, but it has been an amazing experience, and I work with a fabulous team, and we're, we are leading the world uh, up here in Fairbanks, Alaska, in this particular field. And so it is something that is exciting. I love what I do. Um, I love our team. And we really think that we can help change the world here. So was that, it doesn't sound like it was a hard decision for you. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't, because it, I was a single investigator. Uh, so in my science projects, it was me and usually a postdoc and some students. It was never a large team of professionals. Right. And a quasi is a serious team of professionals. So in terms of the management leadership aspects, it was something I wasn't terribly comfortable with. Um, but I have a PhD. I know how to learn. Mm-hmm. And so I knew I could learn the technologies. It was something I was definitely interested in. So um, I, I'm still surprised I said yes, to be honest, because of the, the leadership management aspects where I didn't have as much experience. Uh, but in terms of the technology and the desire to move it forward and the potential, I mean, saying no to that would would have been a really um, stupid move for a scientist. Because, I mean, this, the opportunities are amazing. Yeah. I mean, so much to learn all the time. Um, do you think your D.C. experience uh, helped you? Or maybe if you didn't have that, you would have not been so uh, so quick the, the to The D.C. experience has definitely helped. Um, I never knew how much running a national program actually, uh, how much you actually are going to interact with Washington, D.C. So we're running national programs. And so a lot of the questions come up with funding. And so we're talking with the congressional delegation about what needs to be done in terms of you know, funding various programs or in terms of writing rules and regulations that make sense for Alaskans. So there's a lot of interplay with our congressional delegation. And, you know, we are experts. So they'll reach out to us and ask questions because, you know, they want someone from Alaska who is going to be basically non-biased because we don't have a commercial aspect. So we're not just out for ourselves. Um, They want opinions on various legislation, you know, does this make sense? Is this something that will hinder the field or something that will help the field? And so we do a lot of interactions with Washington, D.C. that I had not expected that I would ever be doing. Um, And so the connections I made when I was back there and the understanding of how the system works actually has been incredibly important. And so I think that my job has been easier and that I have been able to do it better because of that Washington, D.C. experience. And can you uh, describe that experience for me real quick? Yeah, so I was a staffer in the U.S. Senate Committee on Energy and Natural Resources, which meant that I was doing a lot of the uh, background work to determine what type of legislation we might want to have written and um, you know, who the major players were and what their interests were. 
and to make recommendations on legislation that other people were proposing about whether or not they would help or hinder various agencies or various uh, Alaskan corporations, uh, public interests, things along those lines. So basically, I was a staffer. Um, Officially, I was a congressional fellow, which means that you have a title and absolutely zero power, but it was something where you learned how the system worked and you helped you know, write legislation, negotiate. Um, I helped working with the energy bill. I helped with some of the negotiations. Not something I ever expected to do as an aerosol scientist. Really? But yeah. That, but that, in, that experience has really put me in good stead. Yeah. Seems almost like it's meant to be, huh? Your career path here. Yeah, it was definitely not something I ever expected as I was working on my PhD. Yeah. And where are you from again, Kathy? I hate to admit this. I'm originally from Northern California. <laughs> well, a lot of So Alaskans my background are. is I grew up in Davis, California, which is in the Central Valley um, near Sacramento, so northeast of San Francisco. Right. And flat farm country, and the University of California, Davis, was the major industry in the town. So I grew up in a college town. Um, I got my bachelor's there in applied physics, and then I went to the University of Washington, got my master's in atmospheric science, and then went to the University of Nevada, Reno, and worked with the Desert Research Institute and got my PhD in atmospheric sciences with a focus basically on aerosol physics. I then postdoc at the University of uh, University College Galway in Ireland on a Fulbright Fellowship. Nice. Came back to Reno for a little while and then came north. And that was now 22 and a half years ago. 22 and, and a half I years. And I love being in Alaska. <laughs> even today, when it's oh, 40 below zero? Even today. It's, it's minus 26 at home, and you know, it is beautiful. The birds are out. I love Alaska. Yeah, I do too. And it's a good thing, I guess, because here we are. Wow. Well, this has been a fantastic interview is there anything I haven't talked to you about that I that you want to talk about? I think one of the key things about what we're doing is it is so collaborative. You know, we're working with companies across the country. We are working with, you know, governments. We are working very closely with the state of Alaska to really advance things in uh commercial industry and also the public uses of unmanned aircraft, everything from bridge inspection to, you know, helping determine where you might want to deploy ordinance to decrease avalanche risk, um, just a whole bunch of important missions that require teams and require that we all work together to make things happen. And I think that collaborative nature makes this something that is really, truly unique and important. And I think that that's something that often gets lost. You hear about commercial companies pushing, but you don't really hear about the fact there's a lot of collaboration going on to further the field. Well, it's time to let you go so you can have a cup of coffee, prepare for your next meeting. And uh, yeah, great. Thanks a lot and have a good day, Kathy. Thank you. You take care. See you.
The Alaska Science Pod is a production of UAF's Geophysical Institute, where scientists study everything from the center of the Earth to the center of the sun and beyond. If you enjoyed listening to this interview, stay tuned for the next episode that releases every first Tuesday of the month. Or, if you want to read some of Ned's articles, go to the Alaska Science Forum at gi.alaska.edu forward slash Alaska Science Forum.